Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 628. It's Monday, March 21, 2011. That means it is officially the first day of spring. Yes, the spring equinox. Spring has sprung. And every day going forward, all the way up to the summer solstice in June, the days will get a little bit longer. I love this time of year for a lot of reasons, but longer days is definitely one of them. Uh, today is a, is a uh, Monday show. That means it's a listener feedback show. This is where you send me your emails, questions, commentary, videos, whatever you want to send me to jack at the survival podcast.com. Again, jack at the survival podcast.com and put either question for Jack article for Jack or video for Jack in the subject line, whichever one of those is most applicable to what you're sending me. That'll help me with my sorting and help me do a better job of getting your stuff on the air. I get four to 600 emails a day. I obviously can't get everything on the air, but that's the way you do it if you want to be considered to get your question, comment, or video online. Um, with videos, usually I just play the audio of them or comment on them or give them out as a reference. So... Um, I also want to uh, kind of remind you guys about our call-in shows on Friday. I know not everybody's hip on those, but I like them, and I like hearing from you guys. And as long as you speak clearly and uh, concisely, there's no reason you're not going to get your call in the air probably much quicker than most emails. And the way you get on those shows is you dial 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Before we get to your uh, feedback by email today, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Directive21.com. That's the Berkey guy with Berkey Light Water Filtration Systems. Uh, I love Berkey water filters because, in my opinion, uh, they are the best bang for your buck out there. Uh, when it comes to making your water safe to drink, either in an emergency or for getting nasty things like fluoride and chlorine out of your water. Check out the Berkey guy at Directive21.com. I also want to let you know, Berkey's going to be doing across-the-board price increasing uh, sometime soon. I don't remember exactly when Jeff told me that was going to be, uh, but from what he told me, it's not going to be something the distributors are going to have any choice about. They're going to be told this is the new price point. So if you've been putting off that Berkey purchase, I think this might be the time to go ahead and pick one up. Next up today, ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said ShelfReliance, not Self-Reliance, but Shelf, like something you put things on, like me putting my coffee on my desk right now. Why? Because they have innovative storage systems, and that's really what the company was founded on, great innovative storage systems, like their Harvest Model food storage rotation systems. Check those out. Also, you know, a lot of people right now are having a hard time getting their hands on Mountain House, Alpine Air, and things like that. The Thrive brand of uh, long-term storage freeze-dried food is being shipped all orders within 48 hours. So if you've been kind of bumping your head up against this uh, shortage and you'd like to increase your long-term storage, check out ShelfReliance.com and the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. Next up, remember, connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. On Twitter, I am the Survival Pod C. At Facebook, I am Survival Podcast. Uh, on YouTube, I am Survival Podcasting. Connect with me there, and uh, sometimes I do little special things out on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter that don't get on the show, especially Facebook. That's the one you really want to connect with me on. Um, I was a slow convert. I understood the business reasons to be on Facebook. I just didn't like Facebook personally. I've gotten over it. If you get over it, it's really a pretty cool way to stay in touch with friends and family, and I consider the audience friends and family. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content. You get a bunch of great stuff. You get a bunch of great discounts, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but I screwed something up. Friday, I gave out a discount code. That discount code was 1022, like a Ruger 1022-1022. I did that Thursday night with the Appleseed presentation that I did on the uh, Rifleman Radio Show. So I extended it to you guys because I only thought it was fair. I didn't put it out on the blog or Facebook or anything like that. I just set it on the air. But some people had problems getting it to work, and I fixed the ones that told me about it, but I could tell a lot of other people tried to use it. It didn't work. Here's what happened. Friday morning, I had to do a server restart on the audio server, which is where the MSB is hosted, and it set the expiration date on all the coupon codes back to 2008. 
Uh, I guess that's what happened because they were all back in 2008. So I've extended that discount code. It will work all through today and all through tomorrow. 1022, first year of MSB for 30 bucks. With that, let's go ahead and take uh, your first piece of feedback today. Well, this one comes from Caesar, but it also comes from about a hundred other people out there. And when not that many people send me something, I have to cover it. Um, this is about the Liberty Dollar, which uh, started back in 1998. Our own good friend of the show, Rob Gray with American Open Currency Exchange, uh, was part of the Liberty Dollar back when this uh, started up. Not really was not behind it, but one of the people that helped, you know, kind of get the message out about it, like lots of people did. Well, the founder of the Liberty Dollar has been convicted of minting his own currency. I want to read the report to you, and then I want to kind of temper it with some reality of what this guy's actually in trouble for because they're trying to use this as a scare case I can tell you that right now to like shut down things like open currency or shut down things like Ithaca hours or any way that people are trading on their own value and that's not what this guy was convicted of let me read it to you first and then let me tell you the reality of how the government won this case Statesville, North Carolina, Bernard Von Nothaus, 67, was convicted today by a federal jury of making, possessing, and selling his own coins announced Am Ann M. Tompkins, U.S. Attorney for the Western District of North Carolina. Following an eight-day trial and less than two hours of deliberation, Von Nahas, the founder of Monetary Architect of a Currency Does a Liberty Dollar, was found guilty by a jury in Statesville, North Carolina, making coins resembling uh, and similar to United States coins of issuing, passing, selling, possessing Liberty Dollar coins of issuing and passing Liberty Dollar coins intended for use as current money and of conspiracy against the United States. The guilty verdict concluded an investigation which began in 2005 and involved the minting of Liberty Dollar coins with a current value of approximately $7 million. Joining the U.S. Attorney Ann M. Tompkins in making today's announcement was Edward J. Monteth, Acting Special Agent in Charge of the FBI, Charlotte Division Russell M. Nelson, Special Agent in Charge, like a bunch of people that you don't really give a shit about. Is what it just goes on to say. According to the evidence introduced in the trial, Von Nadhaus was a founder of an organization called the National Organization for the Repeal of Federal Reserve and Internal Revenue Code, commonly known as NORFED, also known as Liberty Services. Von Nadhaus was president of NORFED and the executive director of Little Liberty Dollar Services, Inc., until on or about September 30th, 2008. Von Nothaus designated the Liberty dollar currency in 1998, and the Liberty coins were marked with the dollar sign, the words dollar, USA, Liberty, trust in God instead of in God we trust, and other features associated with legitimate U.S. coinage. I'll let you read the rest of the article if you want to, but that was the part I wanted to get to. When you read this... And you read the whole thing. Oh, there's one comment I have to read here. Let me see if I find this. Because this is, this is just classic, okay? Attempts to undermine the legitimate currency of this country are simply a unique form of domestic terrorism. U.S. Attorney Tompkins said in announcing the verdict, While these forms of anti-government activities do not involve violence, they're every bit as insidious and represent a clear and present danger to the economic stability of this country, she added. We are determined to meet these threats through infiltration, disruption, dismantling of organizations, which seeks to challenge the legitimacy of our democratic form of government. All right, then, uh, this is what this U.S. attorney needs to do, because she's asked clown of the year for making such a statement. Uh, let's make it weak, because I'm sure somebody will do something dumber in 2011 than this. Um, I completely agree with you. Uh, attempts to undermine the legitimate currency of this country are simply a unique form of domestic terrorism. So cart your ass down to the Federal Reserve, where they have been trying to undermine the legitimate currency of our nation for almost 100 years now. Okay? The Federal Reserve System has done more to harm the U.S. currency than this Von Nahas guy ever has. Now, let me tell you why he got in trouble, because I don't want people going, Oh my God, now they're going to come take all my silver away. Oh, Because it's already starting. It's already starting. And I just, people, please, when you hear stuff like this, the first thing you need to do is breathe. Take like three deep breaths. And then read fully, and then understand. And then make clear clairvoyant, you know, clear, concise decisions. He was not convicted because he made silver coins. He was not convicted because he said the coins had value and sold them. He was not convicted because the coins were used for barter. 
He was convicted because the coins resembled current U.S. currency and included markings similar to current U.S. currency. And what specifically screwed him over was the use of the word dollar. Okay, and Rob Gray's been on this show and explained all. And this is actually old news. They just finally convicted the individual. This has been shut down for a long time, and that's always what it's been about. That you could have a Liberty dollar in your hand, and a person could look at that and misinterpret it as U.S. currency. Now, people will say you'd have to be a retard. There's a website address on the Liberty dollar. It has different usages of in God we trust instead of in God we trust is trust in God. But understand something about the law. The law has, is required, doesn't always do it, but it's required to provide equal protection. That means we have to protect the stupid. All right. So if you go out and start making counterfeit money using notebook paper with a crayon, but you try to pass that off as U.S. currency and you try to buy stuff with it, that's counterfeiting. It's very poor counterfeiting, but it's punishable under the same laws. That's how they got this guy. Now, make no mistake about it. They knew what they were doing, and they targeted this individual because he was getting to be successful with what he was doing, and they went after him. But had he not let himself be open to this attack by making the Liberty Dollar look a lot like U.S. currency and using the word dollar, he probably would have been fine, and there would have been nothing they could have done. So that's what really happened here. Now, I do think that uh, this uh, this moron, this U.S. Attorney Tompkins, uh, that says this is domestic terrorism, needs to find out who the real domestic terrorists are. But she's a G-man, and uh, I'll tell you what, I guess you can only expect so much uh, from anybody, uh, anybody out there that's that deeply involved. Uh, but Ann M. Tompkins, if you're listening, I'd love to have you on the show as a guest. I'd love to ask you how this is domestic terrorism and how the Federal Reserve devaluing our money by 98% in less than 100 years is not. I'd love to have you if you'd like to come on and, uh, and, and be interviewed by me. I'd love to talk to you about how much good you've done for the country, but I suppose I'm too little to be listened to by folks like you. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another piece of your feedback. This next one actually came in from Facebook, and I shared it with everybody else because I know that a lot of times when a listener puts something on the fan page, everybody else doesn't really see it as much as when I put it on the fan page. Uh, but it's a chart, and it's a chart that's at a website called X, xkcd.com, and I'll put a link in today's show notes to this chart. Uh, and I'm not going to go deep into it because it's a very visual thing that you need to see to understand. But what I want to point out, one of the things that you'll see on it is that... Um, if you were right now um, about 50 kilometers away from Fukushima, and uh, actually if you were there on the 16th or the 17th of March when these were measured, uh, there's a little graph that shows you about how much radiation you would have been exposed to. And then just above that, a very much, you know, almost the same amount of exposure uh, is what you get from a mammogram. And if you get a chest CT scan, you get about double what that was. And that's 50 kilometers away. And, and I just like all the people that are still freaking out about this thing in Japan to understand what we be, need to be concerned with is the people over there who are actually at ground zero where they are being hit by heavy radiation, the people that are going to have their food supply over there disrupted, the people that have had their homes washed away, the people that have their homes fall down on top of them, all the people over there that could use our help instead of us running around freaking out. And I ask people on the website that are saying, oh, i got to do something, what are you doing? And basically, I'm going to watch this map. Uh, this radiation network map, which has shown absolutely nothing since this has started, and I'm going to take iodine supplements. Okay, go ahead and do that then. But quit freaking the hell out. This is nothing to worry about. Quit listening to Alex Jones. So take a look at this chart. What I want to point out is uh, it's in like a color-coded thing, and when you look at it, it's kind of ironic about how uh, how much radiation we're exposed to. For instance, uh, I think you'll be blown away by how much radiation you get by being on an airplane and flying from New York to L.A. I, I really do. I think that will absolutely blow you away. Take a look at this chart and uh, maybe use it as a, as a grounding back to sanity if you are really, really worried about 
radiation from Japan. What I'm worried about with Japan is the people of Japan right now. I, I think that's a lot more productive because there's something we can do about it. We can help. Let's go ahead and take another call. Or call. I mean, let's go ahead and take another email. Here's a tough one. and Another one of these, Jack. Let's play Dr. Phil here and uh, help with relationships uh, about a, uh, a prepper topic. And I do my best with these, but... Uh, let me just read it to you. Jack, what should a husband do without causing too much strife when his wife doesn't want him to carry his concealed weapon while they're out together? A, keep talking to her about it. B, just do it anyway. C, just do it and not say anything, like, I'm going to bring my gun. I have a concealed weapons permit. My wife doesn't want me to carry when we're together. She doesn't even like it when I carry it around the house. I could go on in paragraphs describing the conversations we've had about it. I don't want to bore you. In short, I have told her that I don't want to take any chances with our family being victimized. She has somewhat resistance to me getting a CWP or even owning a firearm. Since her objections to this are rooted in some fear, even though she won't admit it. And no logical argument will change her mind. I don't want to give in, but I don't want to make her feel that she's being walked on. Thanks, Adam. You are the husband. You are the father. It is your responsibility to protect the family, and it's hers too, but if she doesn't want to do it, you do it anyway. But don't be stupid. Okay, here's my Dr. Phil. Your problem is that you're stupid. You're arguing something you don't need to argue. Best Dr. Phil impersonation I can do. Here's what I'm saying. Yeah, keep carrying it and keep your mouth shut about it. It's called a concealed weapon. When something happens and you blow some guy's brains out so she doesn't get raped or killed, you can argue about it then. Carry your gun. And tell her, you know, and you can have the conversations, but you've said no logical explanation is going to work for her. So quit arguing, quit fighting about it. And with a lot of things, I think there's give and take in a relationship. Not with this. Not with this. This is this is like when it's snowing and sleeting and crap, and my wife says, well, I still think I need to go to work, and I take her keys and say, no, you don't. But they said, I don't give a shit what they said. They're not going to pay for your funeral. They're not going to replace my wife if you get killed. If you end up in a freaking wheelchair, they're not going to fix it for you. So you're not going to go. But I don't sit around every day saying, you know what, when it ices, I'm not letting you go to work. No, when the situation comes, then I step in and I do it. There's a point where, and I believe this, and the feminists can be as pissed off as they want, and anybody out there can be as pissed off as they want, I believe that there's a reason that the family structure is a man, a woman, and kids. And that there is a, a very, very soft dictatorship. A 50-point one compared to 49.9 dictatorship. There's a point one, guys, where you're called in certain situations, you step up and you freaking act. And this is one of them. The safety of your family is one of them. And, you know, your wife's emotional distress over a gun, tough crap. Again, don't, don't demonstrate, hey, look, honey, I'm taking my gun. That's dumb. Just don't have the argument anymore. But I, I would carry everywhere. Everywhere you legally can. You know? And, you know, tell her to take a 12-step program or something. I'm sorry. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna yield one speck on this. And, I mean, I don't even really know what else to say. I really don't know what else to say. You can have conversations about it till you're blue in the face. You can keep talking about it. But you need to have conversations that are not about taking it with you. You need to have conversations about why there's a Second Amendment, why there's a gun, and what fear she actually has. Because you're right, of course it's fear. But you know what? It may not be fear of the gun and you with the gun. It may be fear of accepting the fact that there's danger in the world. What you may be looking at is a hypersensitive case of normalcy bias. Well, you can help her with her problem, but in the meantime, be a man, protect your family. That's my advice here. Let's take another one. Here's a quick little email I don't have a lot of comment on, but I just wanted to read it. You know, I was talking about people, you know, how people are freaking out and buying potassium iodide right now and uh, gas masks and Geiger counters and paying five times what they're worth. And, and you know, explaining that it's a lot like when you when people when the ammo shortage shit about two years ago and people were out paying 100 bucks for two boxes of 45 on eBay. Or not on eBay, but wherever the hell they were doing it, because I don't think you can sell ammo on eBay. But you know, I had people telling me, there's a guy that's got two boxes of forty fives for a hundred bucks. I don't know if I should buy it or not. Why are you asking me this, right? So this one listener here, uh, RG, RG sends me an email and just says, 
two boxes at a time. I was buying ammo two boxes at a time before the election. That's what I do now. The, quote, shortages, unquote, I noticed at Academy, I considered more to a bad job of stocking and reordering than an actual shortage. I usually don't have $200 to $300 at one time to spend on stuff I, I like, so I make sure I get more than one box, then I shoot that day. I guess you could say I buy ammo copy canning style. Great. That's awesome. Buying ammo copy canning style, I think that's awesome. Basically, you go out, I'm going to go to the range, I'm going to fire off a box today, buy two boxes, put one away. And I think if you regularly practice, which you should, you'll probably build up a great supply of ammo that way. And the shortages you won't notice. I do want to say one thing, RG, about the uh, the shortages being more about stocking and reordering than actual shortage. No, they were real. Um, I have uh, firsthand uh, information from law enforcement officers, several, including one of my family, that said it was hard for their departments to get ammunition. And basically the departments were leaning on the suppliers saying, hey, we buy a hell of a lot more uh, than, than the sportsman does. And you, if you want to keep your contract with us, you better fill our order. So there was a legitimate shortage, but it wasn't really a shortage. Let's put it that way. Uh, in a way it was a shortage, but it wasn't a shortage because the supply dropped. It was a shortage because the demand increased. And the supply was not able to come up and meet the demand. Kind of like peak oil, right? It's not that less oil is flowing, that there's more demand for it, and uh, they can't pump anymore. That's kind of what we had with ammo going on there. But great little suggestion, uh, copy canning with ammo, copy ammo. I like it. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with the term copy can, I got that from Ron Hood. And it's simply that once I build up a reasonable store of uh, food, I'm going to the store, I'm going to buy wolf chili. And uh, I like wolf chili, but I only really need one can for this week because I'm going to make uh, something that uses wolf chili as an ingredient. But I buy two. And then when I use a can, I buy two more. And then when I use a can, I buy two more until I end up with a really big storehouse of wolf chili. But it only costs me a little amount over time. I'm eating what I store, storing what I eat. So we could do that with ammo as well. Whenever you're thinking about buying a box, buy two. Put one away. Great suggestion. Let's go ahead and take another uh, email. Uh, here's an email. I'm just reporting this. It's not me taking a shot at anybody. I'm just going to read it to you exactly the way it was, and I'm going to let it go from there. Uh, this comes from X EXG11 on Twitter. Um, EXG says, uh, Episode 626, you mentioned how you would not capitalize on the fears of your listeners. You have my and most likely the majority, if not all of your listeners, respect for that. I just wanted to point out that an hour after I listened to that particular podcast, I received a text message containing a story from Alex Jones selling potassium iodine, KI tablets, to his listeners with a link. He's selling one bottle for 200 doses for $40. Just wanted to share the irony. Keep up the good work. Your show is very entertaining as well as educational and enlightening. Thanks, EXG11 on Twitter. Um, I want to just, I'm not going to say anything else except I do want to read the URL in the Infowars.com link. Infowars hyphen has hyphen some hyphen of, I'll leave the hyphens out, okay. Infowars has some of the only potassium iodide in the country. That's just what I'm talking about. And for all the good that Alex Jones does, crap like this just pisses me off. I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to say anything else. I don't want to go down a rat hole with it, but, um, that's exactly what I was talking about not doing, and it's something I will never do to my audience, folks. I'll just never do it to you. It's just To me, it's just wrong. Let's go ahead and take another piece of email. Well, I told you about the Liberty Dollar and the ass-clown antics of uh, Special Attorney or whatever, the Attorney whatever, Ann whatever Tompkins, her name is, that called uh, the Liberty Dollar domestic terrorism because she's a freaking pinhead. I said there would probably be somebody that would do something more stupid than that, and... Uh, Fortunately, I guess for us in the U.S., it hasn't happened in the United States exactly yet, but this comes to me from a listener up on Prince Edward Island in Canada, and it says, Free Range Egg Ban Shuts Down Bed and Breakfast. Let me read a little bit of this to you. A Prince Edward Island's bed and breakfast that has been operating for decades has decided to close down next year rather than stop serving eggs from its own, hen, own hens because of a government order. The Doctors Inn in Tyron Valley, northeast of Summerside, also operates an organic farm. Paul and Jean offer sell their organic vegetables and free-range eggs at the Charlottetown Farmer's Market and offer the produce to customers at the Doctors Inn uh, at bed and breakfast and, at breakfast and dinner time. But, years after, but after years of serving their own eggs, the Provincial Department of Health has told them they have to stop. The department has said it's a long-standing policy that food service operations can only use federally inspected eggs. 
The idea of having to buy eggs from the supermarket rather than use their own from the 75 hens the co- the, the co- and the coop out back was too much for the offers. They will operate this season and then close their business down. Quote, when the Department of Health came around and said, no, you're not allowed to use your own eggs, we have, you have to use store-bought ones or inspected ones, we just turned around, we just turned around, said Paul Offer. Gene and I are getting older, we just looked at one another and said, okay, that's it, we're out of business. Uh, John Bradley, manager of the Environmental Health for the Department of, of Health, said the main issue with the eggs is they aren't federally inspected and risk seminella uh, contamination. The problem is that there's the potential for handling a, a contaminated product, said Bradley. You contaminate your hands, their hands aren't washed, the food preparation service may be contaminated. What? See, that that's moronic. That can happen with the egg from the store. You're talking about preparation there. This is just stupid. I, 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 this is, this is an ass clown extraordinaire. I wish I spoke French, though I could convert this to French for the East Canadians here, right? This is a quote from this ass clown, this Joe Bradley from the Department of Health. Why take the chance when you have the ability to purchase a product from a government-approved source? Because the government is not the answer to my safety, my needs, and my happiness, or my freaking liberty, that's why. And this kind of crap can happen here. This this kind of crack can happen here, man. It, it can. In fact, guess what? This isn't new. Let's read the rest of this article for you. No crackdown. Bradley said the rule's been the same for 20 years, and there's been no crackdown. But the Doctors Inn is not the only well-established business to recently learn of this rule. Six weeks ago, the By the River Bakery and Cafe in Hunter River was told it had to stop using free-range uninspected eggs. Our work is always about prevention, said Bradley. Bradley, you're an ass clown. I, I, this is a guy I would literally love to meet, and I'd love to just smack him in the face. I, I really would. I, I feel that way about so few people that I would actually actually enjoy some level of physical violence against. But people like this are screwing up our planet. Seriously screwing up our planet. The, 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 the audacity to believe that you have a right to tell someone else what they can put into their mouth is just... Bullshit. Absolute, total bullshit. Especially when we're talking about an egg. A chicken laying an egg. And how many cases of salmonella contamination have there been in the mainstream food supply of eggs? Lots. How many have there been from free-range chickens, people eating them on the farm? I don't know of one. If you know of one, send me a link. I'll admit that I'm wrong. This is asinine. And this is why we have to be ever vigilant and on guard at protecting our rights as individuals uh, to grow and consume our own food. We don't get all wrapped up in a hype about, you know, HR875 or whatever it was that you people went nuts for two years. They said, stop it, stop it, stop it. Right? And it came and it went and it passed and no one came and took your tomatoes from your backyard. Even though they told you one day they'll come get them. It didn't happen. But this kind of crap here, this kind of crap here can happen. And this is what I said, bills like H.R. 875 and these other bills, my concern is for small producers, just like these people in Prince Edward Islands, that are at a commercial level of operation. Fortunately, the tester amendment to that bill exempted everybody under a half a million dollars in production. So in America, even if they tried to use that uh, authority to go in and cause this kind of problem, they would be exempted from that bill. doesn't mean they couldn't pass a different law or code and go and try to do this. And I'm sure it has happened here. Um, but this is this is why, folks, I don't want you to look to government as your solution. This is a government solution. Some bureaucrat, some egghead's going to inspect it. How the hell do you inspect an egg? You look at it and go, it's an egg. Like, i got to let this one go and go to a different one because I'm going to freaking spend the rest of the show complaining about it. But uh, I'll put a link in the show notes for you and share this with your friends. Let them know this is what government run amok actually looks like. And this is why, folks, you know what? If you want a monarchy in Canada still, you'd probably be able to change stuff like this a little bit easier. And uh, whether you want to accept that or not, you guys still answer to the Queen of England. Check out your coins. Uh, Let's go ahead and take another one. Uh, Some I want to clear up on the pepper spray here. Um, This comes from hell, and I'll talk about another piece of feedback. I don't know where it is, but I also got recently about cold steel and inferno. 
Uh, it says, uh, Hell says, I was listening to, ep- uh, to 626, something to do with pepper spray. Practice using it on a non-windy day away from unwilling victims, of course. If you use it once to test it, you get another nine sprays on a ten spray key ring thing. Practice taking it out, pointing, shooting, running. I also bought one for me and my friend. We go walking on trails as exercise. I have her carrying it on a regular basis now. Now I know it's good for six months and we'll make sure to get to go get us two more at that point. Uh, thanks for your great work informing the preppers. Hell. And... Um, I'll tell you what, I want to be clear what I meant about six months. Six months for me is a personal thing. Um, cause I've seen year old pepper spray and I've seen people, you know, like, well, let's, you know, oh, it's great. Well, let me, let's go ahead and try it and spray it on the tree. And I've seen it just like trickle out onto my hand. So I know they can lose a charge. Someone else sent me an email that said that Cold Steel says that their Inferno product is good for a five year shelf life. Uh, but to always shake it once in a while to keep it well mixed up. Um, so if the manufacturer specs that, I think we can respect that specification until someone disproves it. But this is this is my statement to you. Pepper spray is a is a sub ten dollar investment. A sub ten dollar investment that at some point I may risk my life on. And I'm just more comfortable at six months intervals replacing it, and I would say a maximum of maybe a year. Do I think that at one year the spray's bad? No. I don't think it's bad. I don't think it won't function, especially the cold steel product. And the product that I saw six months old fail, or one actually it was one year old fail. Uh, and that's where I came with my, my six month spec. If it failed at a year, you know, and who knows how old that product was, to be honest, right? If it wasn't per- purchased from a, a reseller that does a lot of turnover, it could have been several years old. I don't know. My point was I've seen pepper spray fail. So I want to put my spec personal specification of where I'm going to replace way under that since it's so critical that it work when I need it. So if I thought it would fail at a year, I'd buy one every two months. So what I'm saying at, at, at you know, replace it at six months or if you choose at a year and with the cold with cold steel, if they've provided a spec of five years, I believe their spec. And until someone disproves it, I'll continue to believe their spec. I, when I look at a reputable manufacturer like Cold Steel or many other ones out there, and they provide a specification on their product, I don't care if some government beanhead somewhere has done an independent test that says, I, no. You know, until someone disproves that spec, I take the manufacturer at the word of their spec. Uh, especially when their quality, long term, been around for over a decade. Uh, you know, I even I've even met Lynn, who who runs Cold Steel, has founded Cold Steel. Uh, I know he's a good friend with Ron Hood. I mean, if they say five years, I believe it's five years. I'm still replacing mine. At maybe I'll let it go to a year now that I hear that. But again, I want you to understand that I'm not saying when I say something should be rotated. I'm not saying that that it's 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 you know like it's just going to stop working and dry up and blow away. I'm saying that I'm no longer willing to risk my life on it. Another thing we recently talked about was magazines, um, and there's a thread over at AR15, and there's a guy from Magpul uh, that says, well, their magazines you can leave them loaded for as long as you like, and they're not going to wear out. And you know if that's their spec, again, fine. Until someone you know, stores a couple hundred magazines somewhere fully loaded for five years and runs them through an AR with uh, with malfunction, I'll believe the manufacturer's spec. Still doesn't mean I'm going to trust my life to it. I, I, I just think that it's such an easy thing to do. And I also need to explain when I say something like six months to rotate your pepper spray or, you know, every every month or, or two months or at least every couple weeks, depending on, you know, how how convenient or inconvenient it is for you to do to rotate magazines and take unload your magazines so the springs don't develop memory and all. I don't know that you are definitely only loading up Magpul P30, P, P30s, Pmax, right? 30 round Pmax. I don't know that. So I don't know that your that your spec says you can do more. I have to give that advice to the person that brought their their pepper spray from someone like Cold Steel, and I also have to give that advice to someone that bought the product on a on a store shelf somewhere, you know, at, at a sporting goods store or at, at a box store at Walmart that went through and thought, ah, it's time to get some pepper spray and, and threw it on their key ring or put it in into their EDC kit or whatever. So I don't know if you're using Joe Spooties pepper spray, you know, or a, a good brand. I don't know if you're using a PMAG with your AR or if you're using a USGI issue magazine circa 1974. I don't know if your your pistol mags are factory mags from Glock 
aftermarket mags from Glock or aftermarket magazines for a high point C9. I have, when I give a, a, a time limit, if your product has a specification that exceeds it and you're personally comfortable with it, that's fine. But when I give out advice on this show, I have to put a, a, a kind of a cover your ass limitation that covers everything. Just like, you know, if you go buy a box of Remington 4570, uh, uh, ammunition, that's not loaded anywhere near to the power capability of the 4570 if you drop it into a Marlin lever gun. That Marlin lever gun is a strong gun, man. You can load that up to 450 Marlin performance, no problem. You can push that thing almost to like within 350 feet per second of a 458 Win Mag. You can look in the Hornady manual and see load spec for it. So why won't Remington make ammunition like that available? Because some clown might play Buffalo Hunter with his, uh, his Sharps rifle and blow his breech out into his face. They have to build the ammunition to the lowest level of performance. When I give you a time limitation on something that your life is dependent upon, I have to p put that specification down to what I'm comfortable with for the bottom of the market, not the middle or the top, because I don't know what you have. And most of us have the best we can afford. And for some of us, that's not a PMAG. For some of us, that's not a Glock. For some of us, it's low-end equipment. For some of us, it was the pepper spray that was in the discount bin. You have no idea how long that's been on the shelf. Some products are marked with a date of manufacture. If they are, great. Sometimes they're not. You know, because it's not something you eat. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of room for improvement in this marketplace. There's a product called Spitfire. When I first found it, I loved it. Fits on a keychain. Use your thumb to deploy it. You hold it in your hand, flat and concealed. You could easily spray somebody that was grabbing you from behind. I thought it was great. They're made down in Austin. But I can't recommend it. Why? Because the case is made out of plastic. And the little canister that's held into the case has a little screw thingamabob that attaches to the keychain. That screw thingamabob is also made out of plastic. So you carry it for a little while and that thing strips out and the damn thing falls apart on you. And my wife dropped one, it hit the ground and ended up spraying herself with it. So, I mean, again, I can't make a recommendation on longevity or use of a generic thing like how long can I store my magazines and assume that everybody has top-of-the-line equipment with long-term specifications. I just wanted to clear that up today. And uh, there is a guy from uh, Magpul on the AR-15 forum, and I'm going to reach out AR, yeah, on the AR forum, and I'm going to reach out to him uh, once we get the move taken underway, and I'm going to bring him on for an interview. I think he'd make a, a fabulous interview. Uh, but for now, let's go ahead and take another one of your emails. Under the category of freaking out, here's an email that comes in from uh, Matt. Matt says... Uh, It's a freak, it's a freaking store in Maine that's sold out. So if this was, uh, this was California, maybe it would make more sense, but this is a store in Maine. Let me read this to you. Brewer Maine from the AP. The owner of a military supply company in Maine says he's been inundated with orders from people in California buying gas masks and chemical suits. So I guess it is California's doing the buying. Maine military supply owner Frank Pizzucco says hundreds of gas masks are going out the door. He says people are also ordering related gear including chemical suits, jackets, gloves, pants, and boots. He says the spike in sales started over the weekend. Officials in Japan are struggling to contain nuclear power plant damaged by last week's earthquake and tsunami. Spizuko says people are afraid of radiation from the damaged Japanese nuclear plant making its way to the United States. He tells the Bangor Daily News it reminds him of the frenzy after 9-11. He calls it pretty crazy. I'm sure he's not turning the orders away, but I'm sure he's laughing as he's shipping your chemical suit to you in Los Angeles. Now look, if you want to be prepared for a nuclear disaster and have chemical suits and Geiger counters and gas masks and boots, more power to you. But if you're going to go out in a frenzied buy because something like this went on, you're not thinking, you're not thinking rationally, you're not thinking levelly. I want you to compare this type of a response to the, uh, the chart that I've also mentioned earlier in today's broadcast. I want you to look at that chart. I want you to take it in. I want you to really grasp that, you know, how many of the little green ones it takes to make an orange one and the blue ones to make an orange one. When you look at the chart, when you look at the chart, it'll make sense. It'll make perfect sense to you. Um, but just another example of people losing their heads here. Again, I think what we need to be doing is we need to be evaluating how would we be handling this disaster if it was on our shores? 
And we need to be increasing our preps and our self-sufficiency and our self-reliance so that if we ever do, God forbid, have to deal with something this bad or worse, we're ready. But I don't think we need to be freaking out. And I think the most effort we could be placing right now is doing something to help the people out over there that are actually suffering and dying from this. I mean, to me, that, that that's that's what we do as Americans. That's what I said to my wife. She said, are we going to do something to help those people? And I said, that's what we do. And she said, so yes. I said, absolutely yes. She goes, we? I said, well, I, you know, when I said that, I didn't really mean us. I meant us as part of a larger group, America. That's what we do. When someone else somewhere in the world is, is in trouble, we help them. And you can think whatever you want about our government, and I am no friend to our government. I, I think our government is an atrocity. I think it is so beyond the scope of where it belongs right now, but that's not what I mean. I mean you and me. I mean your brother and sister American citizens all over this country. When people are in trouble, we help. We always have, and we have out-helped every other country in the world. No one has ever given as much as we have uh, in modern society because that's what we do, and I think that's what we should be doing now. Let's go ahead and take another one of your emails. Okay, here's an interesting one, an actual question too. Instead of just kind, of, I gotta get, I gotta get, I gotta dig some questions out, folks, because uh, all the articles are just making my head spin today and making me angry. Um, hello, Jack. Could you discuss the pros and cons of stocking up on cast lead bullets versus jacketed bullets for preparedness? This is from John. Uh, background: I'm an avid reloader, and except for my personal defense carry ammo, I shoot only a reloaded rifle and handgun ammo. I am considering stocking up on cast lead bullets rather than jacketed bullets or factory ammo because I'd be able to accumulate so much more ammo for the same price. Thanks, John, in, uh, we'll just say Montana instead of, or no, Missouri, uh, instead of a city, but uh, John in Missouri. Um, John in Missouri, I think that um, I think that it makes a lot of sense uh, as a reloader to use uh, cast lead. I also think, though, that you need to understand the limitations, and what I mean by that is, um, and the best advice I can give you for really formulating your loads for cast lead bullets is to get the Lee Loading Manual, the Lee Loading Manual that gives a, a really great formula for figuring out how hard you can push lead based on its hardness. Because it's not like a jacketed load. You can't take a, a, a jack, a, you know, a, a solid lead, uh, 30 caliber round and, and fully load it with Reloader 19 and 3006 and get good performance. You're gonna get, even with a gas check, you're gonna have some problems. Uh, and a gas check is a little piece of copper that just attaches to the very back of the uh, of the slug, and it keeps the gas on some level from blowing by and burning the lead as it goes down uh, the barrel and having overpressure problems for the hardness of the lead. So with just pure lead and no gas check especially, uh, it comes down to the hardness of the lead and pressure. And again, there's a great formula. There's no way I could explain in the Lee Loading Manual. If you're an avid reloader, you probably have that already anyway. Um, the advantages, uh, it's cheap. And if you can come up with some molds and a source of heat and a whole bunch of old lead that you can get by, like, you know, getting wheel weights, which are great for casting bullets. Uh, that is some of the hardest stuff you'll find is, is, is out there for a good hard cast bullet. Um, so you can usually get those. They're getting a little harder to get. Lead's gone up in price. Some of the guys want at least the scrap price they would get, the spot price for it, and uh, things like that. But it's still pretty cheap, and you can still relatively uh, uh, get your hands on wheel weights and things like that. So cheap. Performance is adequate. I mean, no one had a copper-jacketed bullet for you know the first couple hundred years of history of firearms. And they killed a lot of stuff, and they killed a lot of people with them. So they do work. They, they, they work more on penetration than expansion. Um, so it's about, you know, that's why, by the way, you know, back in the, in the colonial days and uh, in the early American days, when people went out to shoot a uh, game, they carried, you know, kind of a minimum game rifle. It was like a fifty caliber. You don't need a fifty caliber ball to expand very much. As long as you can get enough penetration, it's a half-inch hole. It does a lot of damage, even without a lot of hydraulic or hydrodynamic damage, right? It's just it doesn't have, or hydrostatic damage. It, it's just a if if I take a half-inch pipe, right, with a point on it and shove it through your chest, uh, you're probably going to bleed out pretty quick, especially if I do it side to side like we shoot an animal and go through both lungs with that. This pencil through stuff that bullet manufacturers are all about to try to sell you their perfectly expanding slug, you know, it, it has truth and it has fiction, and some of it's fiction. And uh, to quote Jack O'Connor, 
Uh, one of my favorite all-time riders. An animal with a hole in both lungs will only run as far as it can hold its breath. So, uh, very useful for hunting and things like that. The performance is not as good, though. It just isn't. And if it was, we wouldn't have copper-jacketed bullets because manufacturers would sell us lead ones where they would have a greater profit margin. They would just make the best, most badass through manufacturing process, which is more of a one-time cost uh, than a recurrent material cost, and they'd just make badass lead bullets for us. And that's what they'd sell us. But when we want to push maximum velocity and maximum ballistic coefficient, we can't compete with a pure lead bullet with, with copper-jacketed lead. We just can't. So it's about long-distance shooting, it's about overall accuracy, it's about overall kinetic energy transfer. We can't get to that level, but we can get to a very sufficient level. So what makes a lot of sense is to have a small stockpile, at least, of conventional ammunition, uh, and if you're a reloader, there's no reason you can't reload that ammunition, and then maybe a larger stockpile of lead, and kind of hybrid the two, I think, is is the way to go with that. If you're going to do this, I definitely think you should get the equipment and the molds and get into bullet casting. It's a lot of fun. It really is. It's a lot of fun, and it's one of those things that pulls you out of your everyday world, just like reloading does, and once you get kind of that first one or two cast and you get that mold nice and high, and it's doing a good job of releasing. There's just a lot of satisfaction from banging that spruce plate and opening that mold and watching that pretty shiny piece of lead tumble out onto that cloth. It's To me, it's just a very enjoyable pastime. And uh, it's something that uh, I want to do a lot more of once we get moved. I'm going to put in a little shack up there for myself with my reloading equipment and all in it. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that after the move. So there you go. I mean, I want to go give you one more little tip, though, for lead casters. Um, I think I've said this before, but this is an awesome thing I picked up in, like, shooting times or something like that. What you do is you get your hard lead and you put it in one pot. And you get another little melting pot, and in that you put um, just pure soft lead. And you create a little measuring dipper, like you can do it using like the back end of a piece of, uh, of firing brass or something like that. Uh, you know, like basically cut an, a, a rifle or a pistol case to a certain size uh, capacity. And then what you do is you want about 30% of the total volume of lead necessary to make the slug to be soft. And this is not going to work for casting round balls, obviously. This is for casting a conventional shaped bullet. So you drop your 30% of soft lead into the nose of your, your, uh, your, uh, your mold. And then you cast the other 70% from your typically, you know, you, for those that don't ever do this and don't know, you actually, what you do is you add a little bit of tin to lead and that makes it much harder. And that gets you a much more uh, hard slug that has greater penetration capabilities. But at the lower velocities, it doesn't expand very much. So soft lead will expand. So what you do is you take your, your, tin, your tinned lead, for lack of a better term, and you drop that on top of your non-tinned lead. And the nose of your bullet's soft, so it will expand. And the back of your bullet is really hard, and they're completely fused together as one piece because you drop them in there and they're both molten, and they're kind of welded together. And basically what you have is kind of like your own roll, your own nozzle or partition. Because now you'll get a mushroom off the front of that slug, and you get that hard piece of lead behind it that will drive the wound channel all the way through. And it's a really cool idea, and it's going to weigh the same. I mean, you're talking fractions of, uh, of difference that, that are you know not going to really matter in, in accuracy of your rifle. So you could load just, say, you know... 50 of those, and they would last you for season after season of hunting. Because you could target practice with just plain hardcast lead. Those would be as, you know, just for your hunting round. So I wanted to throw that in on that one, too. Let's go ahead and uh, see if I can get a couple more in here. Here's one from uh, David, who is a uh, truck driver. And he says, uh, here's a question I, I have that maybe you could answer for me on your show. How long could I store gas and diesel do you think it's worth it like as a capital deferment with, when the price of gas goes up? Once again, great job. Well, David, um, I'll tell you, it depends on how much you can store if you're going to pull off the capital deferment thing. Because gas goes up and down, right? So if you only, you know, if you only add it to your stockpile at the times of the year when typically gas was lowest, uh, you could probably do this. This is exactly what Southwest Airlines does. Um, but it doesn't mean that your gas is always going to be cheaper than what you can buy on the market. There are things that cause fluctuations there. 
that that are beyond the, the seasonal fluctuations. But there are definitely, you look at the average price of gas on a graph, you can pick out a couple points during each year where it's always the lowest for that given year, unless something weird comes in and, and changes things, like some kind of arbitrary spike during that low period caused by something, uh, some kind of market force or things like that. So you, you kind of have to store at least a, a full year to or greater's amount for your use for a capital deferment to work on an individual level. It's difficult uh, to store that much fuel. Mainly people store fuel, so if there's a shortage, they'll have it. And as far as how long you can store it, this is this is highly, highly debated. Um, but like the long-term numbers are about, with, with, with stabilizer uh, as well, is about five years for gasoline and ten years for diesel. And that's continuing to use stabilizer in them throughout the storage process. And that's been greatly reduced with gasoline due to the ass clowns deciding that we need to put ethanol in it. I, I, and there's going to be people who are going to tell me I'm wrong, but I personally consider the absolute limit with ethanol fuels, uh, and this is you know not pure ethanol, this is ethanol added to gasoline uh, to be two years with stabilizer. And I think you're pushing it, and I really wouldn't want to depend on it. So we take an approach with fuel storage more along the lines of we just take one of our cans with us when we go fill up one of the vehicles, whether it's a gas vehicle or a diesel vehicle, and we dump that can into the vehicle's gas tank or diesel tank, and then we fill the vehicle from the pump, and we fill the, the can from the pump, and then we take the can home and we put it at the end of our row of cans, and it goes to the back, and it's just a simple rotation And, you know, we're actually going pretty long between Phillips now that I don't go to work anymore and Dorothy didn't go to work anymore, uh, but we still get a decent rotation with that. I think that's a much more sane way to have a reserve fuel supply. And it's pretty easy to keep 50 gallons that way. I mean, you're talking about 10 five-gallon cans to do that, and, and that makes a lot of sense. I think everybody should be doing that, unless you just don't have the space to store it safely. It is flammable, for God's sakes. It's gasoline. If it's out in a shed or something, if it catches on fire, it's 50 gallons of fuel that's going to go up. It also probably makes sense to not keep it all in the same place for a variety of reasons. One, it mitigates the risk of fire and things like that. And two, if somebody were to steal it, they don't get it all. I mean, I think that everything you own and store should never all be in one place. If you look for food in our home and somebody, you know, we had a reporter come one time and she wanted to see where's our giant stockpile of food. And it was like, you know, there's so much food here, but yet it, you're not going to get the picture you're looking for. You know, she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you're not going to get the picture of the food stacked to the roof in the garage. It's hot out there. Not really a good place for food anyway. You know, here's a couple Rubbermaid bins under the bed. Here's a full pantry. Here's a storage rack. Uh, here's some food over in this cat. See, it's all broken up. That way, if we lose part of the house, we don't lose all of the food. If a tornado hits and it floods uh, and the house is opened up or something, hopefully we have something still remaining. Just like we wouldn't put all of our money into one stock, we're not going to put all of our food into one place. And I just think that makes sense with your gasoline as well uh, or your diesel fuel. But definitely you're going to get greater storage life out of, uh, of diesel, and you've got to use stabilizing product. Uh, St Stabil is probably the one that I think is probably the best. It's what I use. And those of you guys that have boats, if you're not using Stabil uh, in your boats, you're crazy. Uh, I had a little boat I just sold it, the little John boat that I had a YouTube video of. I sold it to a guy, and I told him, you need to use Stabil in this even when you're not You know, even when you're using it, not just in the winter when you put it up for the winter. And he said, why? I said, because it takes like, you know, a month or more to, uh, to use, uh, the three and a half gallons of tank holds because it just sips gas so slowly, uh, that you can actually have problems without stabilizer if you're only fishing, you know, once a week or so. You might go three months, four months on that gas. And with the ethanol in it, I just don't trust it, especially with small motors. Uh, like an outboard motor. So there you go on that. Let's see if I can cram one or two more in. Here's one that came in on Facebook, and since this is a soldier serving overseas, I'm going to uh, answer it. But um, you're going to be more likely to, to, to do well with sending me these questions by emailing them to question or emailing them to jack at the survivalpodcast.com with subject line question for Jack or co comment for Jack or article for Jack or what have you in the subject line. Uh, but this comes from Vic, and Vic says, uh, I'm in the Army Reserves in Iraq listening to one of your shows and looking at your site on Facebook. I'm curious. My wife doesn't want to move to Arkansas because of tornadoes. What's your opinion of that where you're moving to? We'll probably move from Massachusetts to Tennessee or Kentucky, but I was looking in the Arkansas area. Thanks for all the info you give to everyone. Vic. Vic, first of all, thank you for your service. 
uh, in the reserves. And folks, remember, a lot of the guys that are over there full-time right now are reservists and guardsmen. And when you meet someone and they're, they're serving your nation, regardless of what branch or in what capacity, please thank them for their service. That's so important that they hear that from you. Uh, but Vic, uh, first of all, uh, I don't know if you want to tell your wife this, uh, but there's more deaths from tornadoes in Tennessee than, uh, than any other state per capita in the nation. More deaths in Tennessee than any other state per capita in the nation. Um, Arkansas has a lot of tornadic activity, specifically um, in the uh, the flat portions anyway of the northwest corner up there by Oklahoma. Uh, it also has a lot to kind of go right along the I-30 corridor, kind of from about uh, Texarkana all the way up through Little Rock and right into, guess where, Tennessee. That's part of Tennessee's province, just right in that that place where lines of storms come through, usually they're uh, born out on the Texas plains out near uh, Amarillo and Lubbock or down in Mexico, and they, they come through my backyard and destroy a lot of stuff in Dallas and Fort Worth on the way. And you might think, Jack, you're moving. If you wanted to get out of there, you'd probably want to get away from tornadoes. Well, I do. And my answer to tornadoes is mountains. Uh, my place is up in the mountains. And you'll often hear this as a myth, that, that tornadoes don't form in the mountains is a myth. It's not a myth. And no one that's got a brain is saying tornadoes can't form in the mountains. What they're saying is they're less likely to form in the mountains than they are on the flats. And if you look at tornado touchdown maps, um, that's true. And everywhere you see a mountain range, you just see the tornado touchdown rate fall way off. And um, so if you Tennessee, Kentucky, Arkansas, wherever, if you get up into the mountains instead of out in the big open spaces, you're going to have a lot less propensity for tornadoes. For instance, I looked at a tornado touchdown map of uh, Arkansas, and right down in, uh, in Hot Springs, it's like a dark brown, man. It's like the second to the so the second one away from uh, the worst color you can get. It's like black, and it's like a, a dark brown, and then an orange, and then a white. So it's like downtown Hot Springs is ground zero almost, you know. And then there's other parts where you got a few little blips. By the way, my place I live in Texas in Mansfield, we're the dark, ugly color blip of death for tornadoes. I don't like it here. I'm happy to get the hell out of here, by the way. So, but you look at that tornado touchdown map in Hot Springs and you watch it go right and just you watch what happens as soon as it hits the Washita Mountains. Everything goes to white. You know, the the lowest frequency. Now you can have a tornado on top of a 15,000 tall peak. It can happen. But we're talking about playing the laws of averages here. So I'm not worried about tornadoes in Arkansas or Kentucky or, or, or Missouri or Kansas or anywhere uh, it, so much because of the state but the part of the state. So it's about looking if it's concerning to you and it is to me because it's one of the things like a hurricane I, I can get out of the way of a hurricane. There's a couple of those a year uh, that might be worth worrying about in any giving sp given spot. You know, if you're in the Gulf or on the Atlantic coast, there's a few that'll come each year that you could get out of the way of if you start and you can watch them and they're well telegraphed punches. In, in tornado season, uh, there's a tornado today, there's a tornado tomorrow, there's five of them the next day. You just you, you, you got to deal with them, and I don't like having to deal with them. So uh, my answer has been get up into the hills. So including Tennessee and, and Kentucky, if you look for mountainous property as well, it will mitigate... Uh, God, I know the emails are going to come. Don't send me the email, people. Please mitigate, not eliminate, the risk of the tornado. Again, thank you for your service, and I uh, really appreciate what you're doing for all of us over there. Okay, next one comes from Brittany. Brittany says, just looking for an opinion, do you think it's better to keep a small hoard of precious metal or sell it and use it to proceeds to pay down debt? We currently have a small collection of gold and silver valued around $2,000. We have a student loan of $18,000, a mortgage of $160. Would it be better to sell the metals we have and put them toward our debt or keep them in reserve? My initial thought is put it toward a student loan, and that is our focus right now, debt snowball a la Dave Ramsey. Just curious to hear your opinion on the matter. Thanks, Brittany. Um... If you had $20,000 worth of gold and silver and $18,000 worth of student loan debt, I might say go ahead and use $18,000 of it and have $2,000 reserves, get rid of the student loan debt, and then save money and, and metal for the rest of your life without being shackled to that debt. But since you only have two and the debt's $18,000, if you cashed it all in, you're going to take $18,000 to $16,000. You still have, you know, I mean, it's an inconsequential amount of the debt, so I'm going to say hold on to your gold and silver right now. And, and, and you know, if you're doing the Dave Ramsey thing, you need an emergency fund. Well, you can hold that emergency fund in cash or you can hold it in metal. 
as far as I'm concerned. You can go cash that money in anytime you want to. So I would make that part of your emergency fund while you do the debt snowball. And I would go after the $18,000 mortgage heavily. And I, or the $18,000 student loan heavily, and I would get rid of that first and pay the minimum on your mortgage while you're doing that. Uh, but no, I wouldn't cash in $2,000 of, of quality uh, investment in gold and silver uh, to buy a loan. Now, Dave would probably tell you, because he hates gold and silver, because Dave is great at debt and stupid at investing. It's just the way it flat out comes. I'm sorry to put it that way. I admire the guy, but his investing advice sucks, and it costs a lot of people a lot of money uh, from 2008 forward. And he's talking about, I heard him on the radio the other day, I told you the market would come back, it's back. It's not back, ass clown. It was at a height over 14,000, it's an 11.8 or 11.9, somewhere like that right now. So it's not back. You know, you didn't get your money back, it didn't work that way. The reason that your 401k balance looks better is because the market came back some and you kept putting money in it. So Dave would probably say, I don't believe in gold and silver anyway, sell it, pay the debt. Uh, so, you know, He says, sell so much stuff the kids and the dog are afraid they're next. Um, but I'm going to tell you that's that's a a capital tool. That's that's as good as cash to me, if not better. Odds are that if you had two thousand dollars in cash, and you asked Dave the question, he'd say hold the cash and pay the debt, so you have the cash for an emergency fund. I'm just looking at the metal is probably being worth more by the time you're done paying off the debt uh, than it is today. And if you were holding $2,000 in cash, it would probably have less value due to inflation by the time you're done paying the loan off. So use the metal as a store of value in case of an emergency fund type need. Now, if the question is, the car went out, we need it for work, we have no choice, we've got to get it fixed now, the repair bill's $500, and uh, do we put it on the credit card and then pay it off, or do we cash the metal in to get the car fixed, cash the metal in and get the car fixed? It's part of your emergency fund, if that makes sense. Great question. Love that one. Let's go ahead and talk about one more thing before we wrap up today. I can't really play this for you because it's so visual, but I got a video uh, from a listener today that I've just got to share uh, what these people are doing. The video is called Farming in the Hood in Kansas City. It's on YouTube. And it's, a, it's a, apparently a new group uh, that maybe have been around for a while, but uh, the group itself is new with this YouTube channel, and they're teaching things like you know uh, building biogasification uh, products. They have a whole video that basically shows you how to do biogas in your backyard. Uh, they're growing tilapia, they're fish farming, and they're like in this hellhole of a neighborhood in Kansas City, like one of the worst. Uh, criminally insane neighborhoods they all, there can be, but it's not one family, it's several families that have gotten together and they're working to rebuild the community around the concept of self-sufficiency and self-reliance and they are absolutely to me, uh, just an amazing, amazing group of people uh, and again, I've already reached out to them uh, about getting them on the show for an interview their channel on YouTube is youtube.com forward slash the Urban Farming Guys. The Urban Farming Guys is their YouTube handle. I'll put a link to the video that was sent to me and their overall channel. But, folks, if you want to be a little bit inspired sometime this week, you know, stop by and take a look at this. Um, I, I am blown away. And this is what I always say. Our solution is not government. Our solution is ourselves. Government can't fix our problems. These people... With their, you know, they probably bought the property for next to nothing because no one wants to live there, and they're turning it into. They even bought an old school that they're rehabbing. Uh, they probably bought all that for next to nothing, and they'll do more in their actions than a thousand government programs ever could hope to. They'll do more than welfare checks will ever do. Um, absolutely inspiring group of people. If you know of any way I can reach them other than their YouTube channel. Let me know. I'd like to get in touch with these guys. I'd love to get them on the air to talk about what they're doing. And not just what they're doing from a political standpoint, you know, kind of like, look, this is how we're going to save the neighborhood. I'm glad they're doing that. But I think what will really make what they're doing work anyway is not so much a whole bunch of other people go doing it the same way and going in and fixing inner cities, but as many people in America as possible emulating what they're doing, whether they're in the suburbs, whether they're in a, a nice neighborhood, whether they're in a, a mountain retreat, it doesn't matter. The more people that, that can become self-sufficient this way, the less problems that we're going to have. And the economic development... If we can start producing more of our food in America and get the goddamn the, the, the government the hell out of the way, 
I mean, the economic development that can be done with things like this. And remember, you know, those of you that are worried about HR, H75, half a million dollars is a lot of production. And if we could get, you know, these little urban farms in America cranking out $100,000 a year in revenue and keeping like 50 to 70 of it, we could really turn this country around. I think these, now this is not the only answer, but this is an answer and this is going in the right direction. Again, the urban farming guys on YouTube, check them out. I'll include a link to the video in today's show notes. And remember, one more time, uh, because I screwed something up or the server screwed something up, there is a discount on the member support brigade, 1022, like 1022, uh, first year of member support brigade today, uh, for, uh, 30 bucks. And I'll run that through tomorrow. Again, it's not going on Facebook or anywhere else. It's, or the blog. It's just on the show here for the people that listen, uh, on a regular basis. There's a perk involved, I guess, in that. And with that, I am going to wrap up today. I'd like to say that um, in spite of some of the ass-clownery that I talked about today, things like this Farming in the Hood channel, um, they give me hope. And I believe that you and I can fix the problems out there. We can do it in our own lives, and that's the only way we can do it right now. We can't fix the widespread problems, and there are certain things we cannot do, but I think we need to focus on what we can do. And for the rest of this week, that's what I'd like to challenge you to do this week. Not just focus on your preps, but what can you do to make your life have more liberty, more independence, more self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And I'll also challenge you with this this week. What can you do to help people in Japan? Whatever it is, please do it. Please. It doesn't matter whether someone would do it to help you. Like I said to my wife when she said that we help, I said that's what we do. Prove me right, folks. That's what we do. We help out. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.